Kia Koto and welcome to this week's episode of Let's Get Sexual. I am Alicia and I'm the host of this sexually explorative podcast. Hey, welcome back to Let's Get Sexual. It has been a while since I have jumped on. What a crazy few months. I've really been taking steps towards launching my sexual empowerment coaching business and wow, so much has happened. I've really been meaning to put out offerings for about a year now and, you know, life happens, right? But the last 10 weeks, I've been part of this incredible coaching cohort where they've supported us to really get our stuff out there and get clear on who we want to serve and it's definitely been an inspiring journey but kicked me out the ass to actually get things done so I've been excited because yeah I've just been taking these amazing actions and seeing discernible results. For the last month I released a free webinar about taking control of your sex life, I've co-facilitated Befriend Your Body which is a 15 day online program helping women develop connection with their bodies and I'm now launching Sexually Thriving Woman which is a transformational 8 week online group program that I've curated for women who want to explore and deepen the connection with their sexual self in a fun and safe environment. I'm so excited about Sexually Thriving Woman. It's my core offer. It's been the thing I've been dreaming about releasing for a while. Befriend Your Body was such an incredible 15-day experience and highlighted to me the power of community. Really highlighted to me the power of people developing a deeper sense of self, diving under the conditioning and the limiting beliefs to really get to their true essence and learning about your body, learning about your sexuality, learning about your pleasure, diving into these pieces of you is such an important part of getting to know yourself more, getting to the place where you actually are living a life you desire. All these pieces fit together, right? Like our life does not happen in silos. How we turn up sexually, how we feel about ourselves as a sexual being, how we experience pleasure, how we feel about our bodies and connect with our bodies, it all impacts how we live our life. It impacts the relationships we have with other people. It impacts how we turn up in the world and how comfortable we feel within ourselves, how confident we feel within our life. So it's been amazing to be on this journey with a group of women and to be able to open up another group container where women can delve deep into their sexuality. Ugh, so good, so juicy. There is nothing quite like supporting women to be their most authentic sexual selves. And now that I've found some space, I'm excited to be diving into the podcast again and bringing you some amazing conversations about sexuality, relationships, and life's juiciness. Welcome to season four. It is going to be a blast. I'm so excited about the first episode of the season. Our guest is Devanchi, and make sure to check her out on Instagram at womanwonders underscore. Brie and I had the most incredible conversation with Devanchi. She recently graduated medical school and she's doing a year of postgrad research on obstetrics, which is the field of study concentrated on pregnancy, childbirth, and the postpartum period. We discussed a range of topics with Devanchi. She's incredibly knowledgeable. You might remember that a couple of months ago on my Instagram, I asked if anybody had 
questions or queries about sexual health, STIs, contraception, etc. So Devachi has come on to help bust some of the myths and really clear up some of these topics. We discuss her background, her journey to becoming a doctor, sexual health and reproduction, her research, contraception, STIs. We really discuss a lot of topics and it's so informative, so beautifully shared. We felt incredibly honoured to have Devanchi on. We truly believe there's not enough information out there about sexual health, reproduction, women's health, etc. So we were really grateful for Devanchi coming on and sharing her knowledge and her time. Because it was such a juicy conversation, I have decided to split it into two episodes. So in this episode, we're going to talk about Devanchi's background, her research, STIs and sexual health checkups. Devanchi also debunks a few key myths and gives us an insight into being a Southeast Asian woman who didn't learn a lot of the sex and reproductive topics that are now so commonplace for her as a doctor. I'm so excited for you to listen to this. Let me know your thoughts and enjoy. Awesome, fantastic. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? It's, it's such a pleasure to be here. It's my first time being on a podcast, so I slightly nervous, but I love, love it. You're going to be great, amazing. Well, it's, it's, I'm so honoured, to be honest, that you said yes to it. I'd love to know a little bit about you, like your background and where you're at currently and how you got there. Yeah, I'm Devanchi. So my background, I was a medical student last year when I started Woman Wonders, an Instagram page about all things women's health. Particular, I mean, when I say women's health, I'd like to clarify that we're talking about sexual and reproductive health. On Woman Wonders, I like to talk about everything from pregnancy to sex and STIs and cancers and all of that. And yeah, so I was a medical student and then I graduated last year. And this year, I'm doing a year of research um, in women's health, um, which we can talk about a bit later if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's, yeah, it's in pregnancy and um, maternal fetal health. So yeah, I'm doing a bit of research, getting to know the research and academic side of medicine. And then from next year, I'll be working as a junior doctor in hopefully in Auckland. <laughs> That's amazing. Congratulations. That's a lot of work to get to where you are. And I can imagine a lot of late nights <laughs> and uh, studies. So incredible. And why did you decide to stay on and do this extra year of studying more about um, women's health and doing the postgrad research? Yeah, well, I think research is a big part of medicine. Most doctors will have dabbled in a bit of research at some point in their career. The reason I decided to do it at this point was in two parts. One, it's just easier to continue studying while you're on the flow of studying. But two, there's this, there was a really great project that I had the opportunity to be on board with. It's a clinical study, so it involves patients, actual pregnant mothers who are currently pregnant and actual babies that are currently pregnant, not just, you know, on paper or anything. And so it, it, it's a really great opportunity to combine what I've learned in clinical medicine, you know, how people, what the experience is like going through the medical system as a woman who is, or anybody who is pregnant, and then combining that with how we can take that further to improve care for babies that are growing small, in my instance. It's a combination of science and 
and actual you know people skills which I thought was really interesting and a once in a lifetime opportunity maybe so why not yeah absolutely how fantastic and, you know since we're talking about it now would you like to discuss more about what this research is and what the outcome hopefully of it is going to be yeah I can give you a short blurb yeah. it's based on it's kind of two parts it's combining obstetrics of pregnancy care and MRI and so we know that some babies grow smaller than expected and then some are growth restrict restricted which means that there's they're, they're growing smaller than expected there's sometimes no no known reason why so it can either be because of maternal me medical conditions like high blood pressure diabetes it can be because of the baby so the baby could have a genetic condition which means that it grows quite smaller than expected and the other thing it could be is the placenta and although some studies have been done on the placenta after birth and after delivery we can see that there are some changes we don't know enough about how the placenta is working during pregnancy because obviously we don't want to do any invasive tests during pregnancy and so MRI is like a new technique that's been used during pregnancy where we can see exactly how much oxygen and blood flow is going through the placenta to the baby how much oxygen the baby's getting and things like that and the great thing is that MRI doesn't involve radiation. So there's a, you know, there's a lot of misconception about MRI because we think of it as the same as CT and X-ray and stuff. Rest assured, it's quite safe in pregnancy. We don't use any contrast or anything like that. So it's really interesting. We've had parents who are mothers with growth-restricted pregnancies who volunteer to participate and um, for the MRI and we're just slowly building up the data and comparing that to normal pregnancies and seeing how how what we find in particular you must have heard about the recommendation that mothers should sleep on their side in pregnancy not on their back mm, yeah 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 and so we know that sleeping on your back reduces the amount of blood flow and oxygen getting to the baby but normally grown babies actually compensate really well for that so their oxygen doesn't drop by as much but what happens well what we think happens in in babies that are growth restricted is that they can't compensate as much so that's probably why they have a higher risk of stillbirth or other complications during labor and so hopefully if we you know understand more about the physiology of babies that are growing small and growth restricted we can detect those who aren't coping so well earlier and reduce the rate of stillbirth in the future wow. oh my gosh it's, it's, a, it's a long stretch it's a long dream <laughs> but um it's, there are steps incredible. in place yeah I think that is really I don't I'm grateful that you and the team you're working with are doing this type of work because there are so many factors that come into play during pregnancy and I can imagine as a pregnant person that it's hard enough being pregnant and all this information coming at you and to actually clarify some points of information like you're trying to do. Okay, like what's leading to this and what then can't the, the fetus compensate for, et cetera. I just think that will provide so much important knowledge for pregnant people to, to be able to identify, okay, what are they responsible for? What can they do versus things that they might not be able to do and, and will just have to be kind of assessed as it goes on. So that's incredible. I can understand why you wanted to partake in this because it sounds like pretty groundbreaking research in all honesty. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, it's great to hear that it's interesting to you also, because I think, you know, on our side, it's like we're 
consumed by this and we're like this is the greatest thing um and sometimes it can be like are other people as interested in it and is it actually going to make a difference but I think what you said is right like even just having an explanation for why things go the way they do in pregnancy a lot of time people mothers and fathers and families don't get you're absolutely right and you know I've never been pregnant and but I have had a lot of people in my life who have been and it for them, I know that there's just been a lot that they don't know and they really appreciate just getting any information that they can. So, so when this research comes through, it just really enables people to be able to have extra. And I, you know, learning from people who are pregnant, I didn't realize, you know, how miscarriages and stillbirths and things are actually quite common, more than I thought. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this type of research helps build the story around that because I can mm-hmm. imagine it's a pretty scary thing to be around sometimes. Mm. yeah definitely definitely oh well thank you for that and so (laughs) is this the part like is this you know pregnancy etc is this the area of health and sexual reproductive health that you are passionate about is there anything else that you're really passionate about and wanting to do yeah that's a good question I didn't think I had a specific area within reproductive and sexual health that I was particularly passionate about which you can probably tell from women's health where I'm like just trying to cover everything on Woman Wonders. And then there's this project, which, you know, is quite obstetrics and pregnancy focused. But then during my med school years, I did a self-selected placement in adolescent and pediatric gynecology, Mm. which I also found super interesting because you get to work with young people with really interesting conditions like genetic and congenital conditions like being born without a vaginal canal, born without ovaries, or just suffer from really debilitating and painful periods that prevent them from attending school, not participating in daily activities. So I'm really passionate about hopefully being able to work with people at that formative age, still learning about their sex, gender identity, and help them manage just things like periods and sex um that would be a real privilege yeah so oh. so that's another passion of mine <laughs> yeah that's amazing that's amazing. and like I mentioned uh, when I was first emailing you Women Wonders is an incredible resource I really take my hat off to you and how much time and energy you put into that and creating resources which are helpful and informative and re- like relatable as well because I think that's actually harder to do than people realize on social media so you've done an incredible job building that resource and I, I just really love what you were saying about I, there's this age right and there's a lot of young people who's bodies don't um, fit what they expect to be the norm and it's hard enough having something that society would determine to be the norm to go through life I can't imagine having those extra layers of oh right like I don't have ovaries I don't have a part of a reproductive system that supposedly my sex is supposed to have or I don't have a vaginal canal or you know I've got cysts around my ovaries etc when you're going through your studies and you're doing this type of work and you're learning about some of these differences that can raise in people's lives, do you think that it's discussed enough? And how do you think we can kind of discuss this more within, you know, everyday society? Yeah, no, you're, you're totally right. And another layer on that with just the natural things that are a variant of, of, mm the average reproductive system is that even people with a normal reproductive normal reproductive system 
we have the we live in a society where where women's bodies or people's reproductive and sexual health is just targeted by capitalism on top of that and so young people especially who who like access to information like what is normal and what isn't particularly targeted by those harmful messages so I really look up to people on social media who use their medical background to also educate educate people about this and you know kind of level the knowledge field about these topics and so sorry your question was is there enough being done about this or what's being what was being done about this yeah I mean if there's anything there and also how you think we can talk about this more I think what you were pointing out is that what I'm loving you know there's there's been a lot of discussions I mean over decades but I see it a lot more probably in the last five years in regards to and trans but then there's the talk about actually you know there's cis and transgender but there's a lot of intersex people out there and bodies do yeah. look so many different ways and people are here discussing well there's only sex and there's only gender but sex isn't binary scientifically <laughs> speaking and I've been like you very appreciative of those who have the understanding and the background and the knowledge to explain the difference between chromosomes and the difference between how bodies can, I guess, come out into the world. So how do you think that that conversation is going both within the medical industry and within society? Is that, do you think they're similar or quite different? I suppose I can speak more about the medical perspective than society. It's been a long time since I had sex ed classes at school, but I think that's probably where it has to start mm. um, because at least when I was in sex ed um, classes at school, we didn't, we didn't learn about the difference between, between sex and gender, let alone intersex and, and what that means and gender, that there isn't a gender binary and all of these things so I think that would make a huge huge difference and the thing is also I think nowadays I know my younger sister she's way more savvy about these things than I was yeah. and so I think social media is a really useful tool for this where even if um, we aren't getting taught this stuff at school it's important for there to be tools and resources out there for people to learn themselves and 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 at all of that is just so that we can normalize these things to normalize the human experience of of not all being either xx or x and being a man, a man or a woman so yeah ground up is a, is probably the best in my opinion i think in the medical community one example i think where we can still improve is in obstetrics and pregnancy care all of the you know, all of the messaging and posters and resources are, are focused around mothers and women as as being the pre pregnancy bearers. And so, and there have been some comments made about how we need to change that, but I think it's really important that we start doing that as soon as possible. I'm not just referring to pregnant people as mothers because that's not the case always. Yeah, and, and making it more inclusive you know it could I don't think I've seen a resource that's included you know dads just dads to come along to an antenatal class yeah and so I can't speak from that experience I haven't actually been to an antenatal class but just imagining what that experience would be like yeah makes me feel like we we need to change that yeah and yeah. so like just in the hospital just the whole women's health floor that we have is just covered with like 
pictures of like women holding their bellies and you know they have breasts and they're breastfeeding and and I just don't think that that's representative of our society and it would really suck to be someone who can't relate to that and have to go through this really difficult period of your life feeling alienated and I think a really small step that we could probably do as medical professionals like doctors nurses midwives is just the way we speak it's really hard to get out of a habit I suppose but just you know avoiding calling everyone who's pregnant as pregnant mothers and and just making things a bit more inclusive would be great yeah yeah that's very powerful and very true I think people when they think of making changes they get overwhelmed because they think of making huge ones and actually I think what you've highlighted that is really important is you can actually just start making small steps and that snowballs and gets bigger and bigger and things around languaging things around what posters you're putting up things around just creating spaces where people feel more safe and seen no matter their gender or whether they you know are in same-sex relationships there's two men turning up and you know they have their baby's going to be born there do they feel represented or men who are pregnant etc so I think that's right there are small things that can be done and we, we really don't appreciate the power of being seen and being incorporated as part of a community and a group so I really loved what you said there thank you for highlighting that I think that's something that every one of us can build into our life right there's also yeah. probably pregnant cis women who don't consider themselves mothers right they exactly they might be adopting a kid out or they've got their own story to tell regarding that but yeah, yeah. very important yeah. everybody's got a unique story there mm. and that mm. that takes me on as well as what has it been like for you navigating the medical system both as a patient and as a student and as a woman of color mm. yeah Thanks for asking. I think like, I've been lucky that I haven't had to experience the medical system much as a patient. So I've been fortunate in that aspect. But as a, as a doctor or a junior doctor, I've definitely, you, you, I am more receptive to the experiences I see other women of colour going through. And I don't, I, I don't think I, I've, I've had a pretty good experience as a student. Med, med school classes are now more than 50% woman in most universities in the western western world and and a large proportion of my class at least were people of color so it's been a really yeah it's been a really great inclusive experience I haven't I haven't experienced any you know blatant racism or sexism from supervisors or seniors um but I think I can definitely understand what people say about women needing to work twice as hard to receive the same appreciation Mm. or validation. I could probably count on one hand the number of women of colour senior doctors that I've been placed on teams with. And like you said, representation matters. And there are just less people to look up to, be mentored by, to share the experiences with, which I I suppose I am, I, I wish there was more of. And I hope things will change as the as uh, my medical school class kind of moves up the ranks. But I suppose one negative experience I could talk about is that the, you know, very few times I have had negative experiences were by seniors who were other women and in one case, a woman of colour. And I've discussed this with other, other medical students and other female doctors. And I think what the most logical explanation of this trend although anecdotal is that because in medicine it's such a hierarchy there's kind of I suppose the perception that there's a limited number of seats at the table 
Yeah. And and because, I mean, there could be at the moment there still probably are, there is in the New Zealand Herald the other month I think there was an article about how there's still a huge pay gap between male and female doctors and senior positions across New Zealand and so as a female consultant moving up to the you know senior level like you do have to develop a tough skin probably and then I suppose that probably leads to some kind of perception change where you're just you you might not be aware anymore of how you're treating your junior female medical students and so yeah I, it's just something I've noticed and I hope hope that changes. I think that's a very acute observation and I think that happens in a lot of industries and I wouldn't be surprised I'd love to see some studies done about this regarding like I think it must be stronger in those male dominated systems right being lawyers doctors and financial areas etc where there are seem to be a limited number of seats at the table like you said hopefully growing and I've discussed it with people as well it's almost like a shut the door behind you system it's like I've wrestled my way to get here get to the table and I'm not going to lose this position. I'm shutting the door behind me to anybody who could come in my footsteps. And I think we live in a society where it's just like a zero-sum game, right? I'm going to lose out if somebody else gets something. And it's that scarcity mindset. So it's so disappointing to see. I mean, I've, I've worked in government for many years and it's the same mentality when I see middle to, to higher management. It's the woman who commonly seem to be the difficult people in terms of trying to grow their you know staff below them because I think there's a lot of fear there around them being taken over by a younger woman or it's sometimes the mentality of hey I had to work myself to get here you're going to have to work twice as hard to prove yourself which is not great if we're all going to get you know we're all going to get something from having a system which supports and facilitates people who haven't been at the table before getting there but very very good observation to make and I really appreciate you saying that because I think we can all think about how I'm how am I going to create a pathway for people to come behind me and how am I going to actively support them rather than emulate the same as we're seeing currently in these industries so I hope that changes for you because yeah me too your job is hard enough as it is you're having to look you know it's probably you don't need the extra layer of difficulty with senior management making it difficult for you to get there yeah and talking about medical community more I'm also fascinated because I feel like as a lay person we're just like look and there's so much we don't understand but is there any like heart or interesting moments that you've had throughout this career in terms of what you've learned about whether reproductive or sexual health and going wow I wish more people knew about that Mm, yeah no I wish I could summarize all of those things here because just like going back a little bit everything I know about reproductive and sexual health I learned from school and formal education because coming from a South Asian family where I've never had a sexual or reproductive health talk with my mother and I don't have any older siblings to talk about these things with so so as I was going through medical school especially where we were learning you know all of these things that not everyone probably needs to know or wants to know but I found them really interesting and I would talk to my friends about it and or I would you know when I'd be talking to patients in clinical settings and I realized 
how much of a gap there was between just things that like about how your body works and and what's normal and just the fact that we don't know about that as a it's just like a common fact so some aha moments that I that I that continue to um, amaze me and that I love telling other people about I can talk about three really quickly oh great Um, yeah yeah so the first one I would say is just about how it's not unnatural to skip your periods with the hormonal contraceptive pill and yeah we want to talk about this more I know but it wasn't until my like second to last year of medicine that I properly learned about why this was a myth it was mind-blowing to me at the time because we think that when you skip your periods the blood just builds up inside you yeah and you know and like what's going to happen (laughs) yeah yeah And, and so the myth is that that's actually not true. And the hormones in the pill just keep your endometrium really thin and stabilized mm. so that when you do take a break, that's why the bleeding's lighter because there's not much endometrium to shed mm. and it's a tiny bit less painful. So that was an interesting myth that I love yeah. talking about. <laughs> and the second one is about how your hymen doesn't break when you have sex. So yes, everyone, yes, talk about this. I love this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so like there was always that myth, right? Of all that thing that we got taught that like the first time a person with a vagina has sex, they will probably bleed and that's normal. Mm. And the truth is, is um, Electra once explained the hymen to us like a hair scrunchie. And so it's a thin, stretchy tissue inside the vagina. And just like our noses, everyone's hymen is different. And they already have a hole in them. That's why your period comes out. And so what happens with sex is that as your vaginal walls become more expanded with arousal, the hymen also stretches. And sometimes if you're not aroused enough, which is the case in a lot of people having sex for the first time but especially women yeah and so if if it doesn't stretch enough then there can be little tears like a Mm. paper cut in the in the thin tissue and that's where you get a bit of bleeding but it shouldn't you shouldn't bleed more than like a paper and yeah so all of these outdated practices that still happen around the world about testing people's virginity is complete garbage (laughs) because even a yeah even a gynecologist can't tell whether or not you've had sex just by looking at your vagina or your hymen so if the expert like, can't yeah. tell then the non-expert's not going to be able to tell exactly. and, oh, such an important myth to bust there's still so much trauma and violence around the world in regards to checking hymens and I think this one little myth busted would save so much pain uh, so thank you for saying that because I can imagine people listening and like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and that because it's you know that scrunchy and it's tissue, it reheals, doesn't it? So yes. I mean, it's if you have sex and it did happen to tear or anything, and you look back at it later, it's going to have healed yeah. up. So yeah, you know, some people might think you're a virgin again or not, and yeah and some people have two holes and some people some people don't have a hole or it's really tiny and that they need surgery for that and but these are just all you know these are variations yeah I love that like you said before you know everybody's got that a different body so there are these variations there are people whose hymens might not like and others so it's about recognizing the individuality mm, I love that that was myth number two busted great yeah and just really quickly about the third one is pretty basic but I think it's also got a bit of cultural um, nuances to this is that pain relief during your periods is 
is not a sign of weakness and it shouldn't only be reserved for extreme conditions when your pain is so unbearable because I think in some cultures there's the belief that taking pain relief in terms of western medication is is suppressing your body's natural functions and so so you shouldn't be doing that but Mm. and yes if you take too much of a painkiller your body can develop tolerance but not if not if you're taking it in the prescribed doses a few times a month and if it is if if it is so extreme that you need to take it for more than a week a month that's a sign you need to see your doctor about that like I'm tired of this belief that that it's just a part of being a woman to deal with this pain and like yeah yeah yeah. and like yeah a girl could stay at home and not go to school or not participate in sport once a month but like why should they have to do that when they can take pain relief or or take a hormonal pill that can lighten their periods so that's something I also like to talk about and actually you know anti-inflammatory medications Mm. actually reduce inflammation so that that's actually addressing the root of the of pain so it's not really like you're just shutting or like quieting putting a plaster on it or something and I don't see why that's any different to taking antibiotics for your infection yeah (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's about having the choice right and the autonomy. You know, if you're somebody who doesn't want to use pain medication for whatever reason, sure, don't. But it's also about recognizing why you're not doing it. And is there a story you're telling yourself here or something that's, you know, family or friends have passed to you and actually it's okay to take it and that you don't have to live in this pain just because unfortunately we do have this for a certain amount of time in our lives and it's per month so if we can reduce the pain like I'm I'm all about that and I will agree like the um, hormonal contraceptive pill changed my life in regards to period pain it was debilitating as a teenager and it's crazy to me now that I really like really have to think about it. I get a couple of cramps if I have a withdrawal bleed but I yeah I just don't think people appreciate what not having that pain means yeah mm-hmm. so thank you really in that yeah. and going on to sexual health I'd love to pick your brains regarding this because this is a just another topic like you were saying that we really rely on school here to teach us about sexual health and school really lets us down a lot of ways I mean I'm hoping now that the um, mainstream school system is a bit better but I think it really depends on the school we were grew up in catholic and like schools so it was very little was taught nothing wow i'd love to hear more about your experience (laughs) yeah i mean um when we say nothing it's pretty much nothing i think we were just basically (laughs) told to that we they knew we were going to have sex so we should use condoms but really they're supposed to tell us abstinence is key so there was this mixed messaging there. I mean we've re- we're actually shown um live birthing videos pretty much not, not live but recorded birthing videos yeah, to pretty yeah. much tell us don't really have sex because this is gonna be the pain you're gonna be in afterwards so that was and it was all in science so nothing yeah no I mean at intermediate <laughs> we weren't taught anything at my school no my teacher in intermediate which wasn't um, religious pulled us all of us girls away and told us about periods because she wasn't taught about it and thought she'd been dying so she took it upon herself but it wasn't part of the curriculum and there was no sex in relationships right there was no like Mm. you as a sexual being it was Mm. this is scientific and Mm. we're going to provide you bare minimum in the scientific Mm. as well so yeah, I'm just so keen to talk about sexual health because it's empowering 
and it's such a stigmatized area I'd love to get into it so in terms of sexual health sexually transmitted infections I found are incredibly common once again probably yes I think yes <laughs> a lot of that taboo and do you think it's important for us and why do you think it's important for us to open that conversation up around STIs yeah definitely I think we should definitely be talking more talking more openly about STIs and like you say it's it is really common but the taboo is that we perceive people with STIs differently we think that people who get STIs are promiscuous they sleep around they're unfaithful it's associated with being a sex worker or being a homosexual HIV was seen as a disease exclusive to the homosexual community for decades and you know being homosexual is in itself being in a marginalized community and so all of these associations we have with STIs make it even harder to talk about with your friends and family let alone your doctor so I think the first step is working towards making it easier to talk about with your doctors and yeah like you said it's so common and STIs don't discriminate you could have had sex once in your life yes. and got get an STI yeah. yeah you have the same chance of getting an STI as anyone else in that one encounter if you don't take the right precautions mm -hmm. and so like you were saying like if you don't teach young people about this if you if you you know teach them abstinence only sex education then then you are putting them at more risk of getting STIs and so the sooner that you talk openly about your sexual history and your experiences and your symptoms, as soon as you think you have those symptoms and see your doctor about it, the sooner you can treat and manage it. And most STIs are treatable and have no long-term consequences if they're treated early. So there's no reason to avoid talking about it. And some STIs do have longer consequences but there are still treatments um, that don't treat it, don't cure it, but do treat your symptoms and help you lead a very normal life. Yeah. So I don't see how it's any different from having a heart condition or, you know, anything like that. Oh, I love that. That's so powerful. I absolutely think this is the narrative that needs to be shared ongoing in terms of getting flus or viruses or anything we're like okay part of everyday life we pass it around we just get something to manage the symptoms or to treat like get antibiotics yeah. for things and we're not scared of people who have a runny nose no. I mean well nowadays like, I mean yes we should be but you're right you know there's there's this normalization of it and there's this understanding that it will pass around because we are in close contact with each other but when it comes to STIs there's this stigma like you said around what does it mean about that person or you as a person if you have it and I something that commonly comes up for me in terms of how to have the conversation you know if you do have it particularly when the person you're talking to has all these narratives running through their mind that that aren't true and you mentioned that coming early to see a medical professional about it is, is really key to help you treat and diagnose and everything it, do you hear like or see a lot where people almost don't want to come because they don't want to hear that they have one of the incurable STIs I guess 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of questions that people have when they have had an episode of unprotected intercourse, which is a very medicalized phrase probably, but yeah, when they have unprotected sex and they've had a new sexual partner and they come to the, the young person would come to the GP clinic and they, they don't really know what to expect. And and they don't know what to even ask for a test for or or what's going to happen. So I think that it's really brave that there are still young people who still come to the doctor, but just from seeing how little they know, and even though they still came to see a doctor about it, I can only imagine how many for every one one of those people, there's like 10 who 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 don't feel comfortable even going to see a doctor about it because they don't really know what there is to investigate because yeah yeah, a lot of STIs don't have symptoms before they do and so when they when you're first you know infected with a STI you may not have symptoms and so if you don't know that STI checkups are why they're important what they look for then why would you go see a doctor about something you don't have symptoms for yeah you're absolutely right but people wait to kind of I guess until there's no turning back and they have to recognize that something's wrong in order yeah. to go and get checked up. And on that note, could you, you know, talk about what an STI checkup entails? Yeah, yeah. So an STI or a sexual health checkup is partly talking. So your doctor asks you questions about how many, about, you know, when you last had um, a sexual encounter what that encounter was, um, whether it was oral sex or vaginal sex or non-penetrative sex of any kind, or basically what type of sex you have to assess, you know, which STIs you're at risk, how many partners you've had, whether you've had STIs in the past, if there are any symptoms which you don't recognize as symptoms yet, like burning when you pee or some unusual discharge or some lumps or ulcers around your mouth or your genitals so these things which sometimes you might not even have associated with an STI because the symptoms came on so long after you had sexual intercourse so there's the history taking and then if you do have symptoms then your doctor might do an examination and that's a really difficult thing for people understandably but it's important because the tests that you do, like the swabs and the mainly the swabs, they need to be they need to be done by a doctor if you do have symptoms. So after the examination, the tests, if you don't have any symptoms, you can take your own swabs. Mm-hmm. So you can do your own anal swabs or vaginal swabs mm-hmm. and the, and urine sample and bring it to the nurse and they send it away to the lab. If you are symptomatic, then the doctor will do those swabs. Okay. And then in New Zealand at the moment, we have a bit of a syphilis epidemic. Mm. The number of syphilis cases have been rising. And so a part of the sexual health screen, doctors are encouraged to also do um, a blood test for syphilis and HIV. Mm. And if you do have a partner who has herpes simplex virus, herpes, then you may ask your doctor to also include or your doctor will probably suggest that they include the HSV test in the sexual health screen so mm-hmm. if you're not symptomatic then it'll probably be the blood test right. particularly if you're planning to be pregnant or you are pregnant it's important that you do the HSV blood test as well and then also just asking if you've had hepatitis vaccines and if not then you also get the test for that 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so the important thing to know is that not all, H all STIs cause symptoms when you first get it. So if you've been con in contact with anyone who have an STI and they say you should probably get tested, then it's, it's good to get tested as soon as possible. But your doctor might say to also come back for another test after the window period of the infection. So for example, chlamydia and gonorrhea have a, a two week window period. So that means that if you got your test done within two weeks of the encounter where you caught the bacteria the test could come out falsely negative right. so you could have the infection but it doesn't come up positive yet so you're falsely reassured and you could go on and um, pass it on to somebody else yeah. so it's important to get that test done after two weeks with HIV and syphilis it's four weeks after infection right so that's quite a long time you know if, if you end up having a sexual encounter and that person tells you oh by the way I've got an STI and unfortunately they didn't tell you first which they should or they did tell you and you decided to go ahead with it anyway which is you know you're, that's fine and but in terms of knowing that you potentially have to wait four weeks to find out something yeah I yeah. didn't actually realize that some of their windows were so long because my reaction would probably be go I want to go get it checked out straight away great came out negative I'm fine I'm home free when actually that might not be the case huh, yeah that's really yeah I have yeah I have met people and patients in that in that situation especially you know with things like HIV we there's so much stress about yeah. that because that's not a curable condition. And yeah, it is really unfortunate that I can only imagine how stressful those four weeks would be for you. Yeah. That's, that's crazy though if I think about it, that I've never heard this from my doctors. I've had multiple sexual health checkups. I, I guess what I wanted to get from you as well is like when is a good time to go get it, whether you think it should be regular, you know, or after each new partner. But, you know, a lot of this stuff... I've had to figure out on my own, but like on pages like yours. And I'm really interested in potentially why um, this isn't a more common narrative, potentially. I know that I'm not the only one who's had that, but still, obviously, it's anecdotal, not from any particular research. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I think, so really, GP should be telling you that about, about these things, about when, when is the best time to come for for a test and you're right a lot of these things we learn on our own just thinking where I think the limitation that GPs have is the is the time aspect 15 minutes for an entire consultation is not always enough but a good tip that I think is useful to know is that you can ask for a sexual health screen when you go for your cervical smears so I think that's a good thing to maybe link together where where if you're making an appointment for your cervical smears it would be great if there was more education around this too where you say when you come in for your sexual for your cervical smear why not also book in a sexual health checkup and because you don't you don't need to have had recent unprotected sex to who need a sexual health screen and there may be things that you've you've noticed but you're like no nah, that can't be an STI and so you've like put off like a like a lump or something like that right yeah. and so yeah it would be great if there was more education around that to yeah I think we all live very busy lives especially young people um yeah. like who are in school full-time when are you going to, Go to make this. time to 
yeah, yeah. the additional shame and stigma around it definitely doesn't help that does it it's like oh it's an it's a future me issue <laughs> but yeah anyways, which we like to approach things with you know you were talking about putting together the you know the cervical screening etc with this I think that's a great idea you know if I can go to get one thing done everything's done there it's much simpler to do but I know there's there's a there's a lot of fear out there regarding cervical screenings etc and what it entails potentially for those who've also had sexual trauma or assault could you just discuss a little bit about what those screenings look like and you know whether there's anything that people who are a bit concerned about coming in like how they could potentially go to make themselves feel safer Hmm. yeah so what what cervical screening at the moment is 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 it's for all people with the cervix between 25 and 69 years old. And the smear test is done every three years. And so this has actually changed from before where it was it started at 21, but now we've moved it up because there's, it's very rare for cervical cancer to affect women under 25. So we were over-testing people and, you know, causing all that trauma unnecessarily. And so, so... For those who haven't had a cervical smear yet, what it involves is lying on a bed with a blanket over the lower half of your body and undressed from in your lower half so that the doctor or the nurse can insert a plastic speculum into the vagina to, to open up the wall so that they can get a view of the cervix. And then you, you they use a rubber broom to to gently take a sample of the cells around your cervix and they put it in a tube and they send it off to the lab. And the most difficult part of this, like you said, for people who've had traumatic experiences in the past is is the speculum being inserted. And so some, some things that I found that I've seen help other people is the way that the doctor or the nurse who's doing it speaks to you particularly if they're aware that you've had bad experiences in the past. So if you have an ongoing good relationship with your, with your doctor, or if, or if you can just give them a call beforehand and let them know that you find these really distressing. So if they can bear that in mind, they would actually be really grateful to know that in advance um, because they're as nervous about it as you are in terms of making it worse for you. Yeah, if, if you have had bad experiences in the past. The other thing is, I know breathing exercises is like, yeah, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll breathe gently. But it, it really helps to think about relaxing your shoulders and your chest because that will automatically kind of relax your pelvic muscles as well. Mm-hmm. And that's really the key. It's just the, the more relaxed you are, the less painful it will be because your, your pelvic muscles aren't keeping things tight and resisting the speculum. The sample taking itself shouldn't be painful if done right. It's like a rubbery soft thing. But the good thing is, the good news is, is that cervical, this whole process is changing from 2023. And so yeah, the, the government has announced that we'll now be focusing on HPV testing rather than testing the cervical cells. Right. So so now everyone only needs this test every five years, not three. Mm. And you can do it yourself. You do need to make a doctor's appointment, but you don't need a speculum. You, you just have to insert the swab into the vagina and take a swab of the walls around the vagina. It doesn't have to be all the way up to the cervix either. Mm. And it's basically just testing for HPV virus because if you don't have that, I mean, the HPV, HPV virus 
causes 99% of cervical cancer. So if you don't have the virus, you have a very, very low risk of cancer anyway. Mm. Yeah. And hopefully, hopefully that will make cervical screening less stressful and traumatic for people, especially people who need it the most. Uh, the rates of cervical screening are lowest in, in Indigenous populations, people in low socioeconomic groups, people in ethnic minorities, lesbian and bisexual people, and sexual people. So we really need to make, I mean, everyone should be getting screened for cancer. It shouldn't be like, well, if you can't deal with this test, then then we'll never know if you have cancer. Yeah. So yeah, it's good that it's good that things are changing. Yeah, a lot more accessible. That's great. I think that's such good news. Because one question I did have from um, when I mentioned um, on my Instagram that you'd be coming on if anybody had questions. You know, they asked if HPV was tested during the smear test, typically. <laughs> so previously, well, with the, what we have now, you said obviously we test um, the cells themselves for cancer, but do they test for HPV at the same time or is that actually separate? That's a separate test. Mm, yeah. yeah, so I think, I know it is done. You, they, they do test for HPV in some cases, but it's not, it's not a regular part of cervical screening. I don't know what the criteria is right. um, and who gets the HPV test, but generally they just look at the cervical cells under a microscope. Okay. Yeah. Cool. That's yeah. That's good. I'm sure yeah. the person who asked will find that very interesting. And now that we're moving to a space where actually HPV is being tested, which I'm mm. really interested to see the impacts of, like you said, on these groups who um, are underrepresented and underserved in this space. It's gonna yeah, like and, save lives. Yeah. And just to clarify, it doesn't completely exclude the need for no. for the for the smear test. If you do have HPV, if you're yeah. to have HPV on the swab mm. then they will call you in for a cervical smear yeah. yeah great good thank you for clarifying that it's fantastic <laughs> and I've realized time's going so fast um which is wow. <laughs> one thing I'd love to ask you because I don't know if this is recent I was I wasn't told it historically on my sexual health checkups but my most recent one I went to my doctor told me that I had to specifically ask for a herpes test and I never told that been told that before I thought it was covered within the typical test and then when I said to her I wanted that I wanted herpes to be tested she said that actually because I um, already have I think it's HSV1 isn't it that's the cold sore yeah, I already have cold sores, I have HSV1, that there's no really point getting a herpes test because the results don't come back as HSV1 or HSV2, it's just that you've got HSV. Mm. So yeah, could you tell why herpes is a different, like it's not included in the kind of bottled up version <laughs> of a sexual health test and, and yeah. then why um, it doesn't show potentially the two strains? Yeah, so I hadn't actually thought about this until you bring it up, but it's a, it's a good question. And I think the reason why it's not regularly tested for is because a person without symptoms could still have HSV, but be negative on the test because they're not shedding the virus at that time. Right. Because the test, the conventional test, the first, first line test is a swab. And so the test, if you don't have any sores, 
and you're just taking a general swab, mm. it could come back negative and falsely reassure you that you don't have HSV, yeah. even if you could have it, because there may not be symptoms for years afterwards, after actually getting the infection. And when you do have symptoms, or if you have been in contact with someone with HSV and you want the, the, the doctor can take swabs, but like you were saying, you can't tell the difference between one or two because or with the swabs, I think it must be something to do with the way what the test is, which is a PCR test. So that's just a way of doing the microbiology of the sample you take. And then they basically sort the DNA of the virus. And there must not be a recognizable difference between HSV1 and HSV2 on that test. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, one distinguishing feature is that if you have recurring um, genital herpes, that's most likely HSV2. Yeah. Um, HSV1 doesn't cause that recurring type. And if you never had the recurring genital herpes type, then you most likely have HSV1. But yeah, I mean, that's not a definitive thing um, because you never know when you could have a recurring episode. But yeah, I think it must have something to do with the genetic, like the DNA that they they are looking at under the microscope and we might not have the tools to distinguish those two strains yet. So just a note for people, if you want to actually get herpes tested, specifically ask for it, because yeah, it was definitely yeah. not something I knew, but interesting about the strains. Oh, well, there's, it's, it feels quite overwhelming, I think, for people when they think about all these things that you could get. But like we mentioned before, there's so many types of viruses and bacteria you can pick up in general. So this is just another part of your body and other parts of your body that can pick up the strains. So it's about going to see it as a holistic body function yeah. rather than just, you know, about that sex part, which has the shape. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So fascinating. Thank you for clarifying yeah. all of that. Mmm, so good. So many myths debunked, so much clarifying information. Oh, I wish I had known so many of these things like 15 years ago would have saved me a lot of hassle and a lot of confusion. So I really hope you enjoyed that first episode with Devanchi. Isn't she just amazing? Absolutely check out her Instagram, it's in the show notes. And don't forget to keep an eye out for her second episode coming have a wonderful day everyone if you want to know more about what I'm doing and keep up with it make sure to follow me on Instagram at aliciafay.coach that's at A-L-I-C-I-A F-A-Y dot C-O-A-C-H alright hopefully talk to you soon